Today's scripture comes from verses of Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Okay, Uh, if you are joining us here for the very first time, uh, we are doing a teaching series on the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And in God's providence, uh, we are now at Genesis 15, where we're taking a look at a figure named Abraham. And it is to Abraham that God makes a covenant, which is like a, a contract or some kind of promise or vow. And God makes a covenant to Abraham about two things, and they both start with the letter L. He promises him lineage, and he promises him land. Now, I realize that in our current cultural moment, there is a lot of wars taking place over land. So whether it's Ukraine and Russia or Israel and Hamas right now, there are nations that are waging war over land. And the reason for that is because land represents our quality of life. It represents our financial status, it represents our culture, our identity, our home, and even our future. So it's not by accident that people are fighting uh, over land, and the Bible talks a whole lot about land, and the land of Israel in particular. But here is how I don't want to talk about a theology of land. I don't want to talk about thousands of years of history into one sermon. I don't want to do that. I don't want to get overly political. And there are a lot of different political viewpoints with the war that is going on right now. I don't want to talk about Zionism. I don't want to talk about decolonization. I don't want to talk about the various political viewpoints that there are. And it's not because I don't have any. I do but it's because I don't want to use my platform to talk about those things. I get nervous when pastors pretend to be experts on Middle Eastern foreign policy. I am not an expert on that stuff. I, I, I'm a student of the Bible. I'm a pastor. So I'm not going to pretend like I'm some expert on Middle Eastern foreign policy. And I do get nervous 
when pastors pretend, or people in general, when they voice their opinions about stuff that they don't really know that well. So I don't want to do that. Secondly, I don't want us as a church to interpret the Bible through current events. There are certain theological paradigms and frameworks where the hermeneutical grid or the glasses that you wear go hand in hand, the Bible on one hand, and then Fox, CNN, the New York Times, your favorite news outlet in the other, and that is how they interpret the Bible. I don't want us to do that, firstly, because it freaks people out, and I don't think that's the point of the scriptures, to freak us out. All this talk about end times, Armageddon, rapture, all that stuff, we have to be very careful about that. Instead, I want us to let the scriptures interpret itself. Okay, so I don't want to impose current events on the way that we understand the scriptures. So how do I want to talk about a theology of land today? It would be remiss of me, at the very least, if I don't say that we should all be grieving uh, over this time. Many of you have seen videos, you've watched the news, you've read articles, Um, if you haven't taken a moment to pause and to grieve at the loss of both Israeli and Palestinian life, uh, as Christians, we are called to mourn with those who mourn. And I would encourage you to do so because they, Palestinian, Israeli, they are all made in the image of God just like us. And although it is happening on the other side of the world, we should mourn with those uh, who mourn because there are many that do not want this war. Also, I hope we don't need moral clarity to know that, what, that some of the evil that has been taking place, whether it's kidnapping, beheading of babies, rape, on and on, these are things that we should absolutely condemn. As followers of Jesus, again, every one of us is made in the image of God. And the reason, you know, the reason why we, have think, we, we feel a sense of justice or we like things like human dignity and equal rights and consent and things like that, Why are these things the things that we value? Because God is holy, he's righteous, he's moral, and we're made in his image. Just war theory or just war doctrine actually has its roots in in a lot of Christian thinkers from Augustine to St. Thomas Aquinas, right? So in many ways, humanism, humanism also values things like the dignity of people and equal rights and consent and justice and those things. But in many ways, humanism, as Nietzsche would say, if Nietzsche would say, he would see our version of humanism, he would say, that is the fruit of Christianity without the root of Christianity. The reason why our roots, why we believe in this fruit, is because we're made in the image of God. We mirror and reflect them. That's why we care about all of these things. And so I want to condemn the evil that is taking place. But more than anything else, If a Palestinian was here, an Israeli was here, a North Korean, a South Korean, Taiwanese, Chinese, you name it. If if all the peoples of the nations were here in this room right now, the thing that I would want to say the most and the the thing that I would want to offer the most is hope. And it does seem like in our current cultural moment, based upon what is happening all over the world, including our own nation, we could all use a sense of hope. And we can't live without hope. We are incurably, incurably hope-based creatures because we're made in the image of a very hopeful God. And so I'm gonna extend hope to all of us. And so the way that I wanna do that is by thinking about the Bible like this. I mentioned this last week, but if you've never read the Bible before, I want you to think about the Bible like a glass house, like John Wick's house. 
So when you look at a glass house, you can see all the characters in the glass house. And if the Bible is like a glass house, last week we looked into the marriage of Abram and Sarai, whose names would later be changed to Abraham and Sarah, so I might go back and forth. But today I want us to take a deeper look into the life of Abraham and the covenant that God makes with him in particular. And Abraham is very significant to our faith because in the scriptures, Outside of the book of Genesis, in these 65 other books, he is mentioned 115 times. Isn't that crazy? Outside of Genesis. He's a patriarch of our faith, and not only our faith, but in Islam and in Judaism as well. He is a central figure in all of the major religions. So I want to take a look at Abram and the promise that is given to him about land and lineage and how our ultimate hope is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I want to talk about all of those things. So take a look with me at verse 5 and 7. It says, God took him, that is Abram, outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, good luck is, is what he's saying. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Now here, God makes a covenant with Abram. Covenant again, contract, vow, promise. Promises him two things, lineage and land. And it's significant for Abram to hear these words from God because up to this point, he has no kids. He's barren. Secondly, he's lived a highly nomadic life up to this point. He doesn't really have a home per se. And so God is promising him both lineage and land. And you can imagine with me, if I can just capture your imaginations for a moment, Imagine you're in a Middle Eastern desert, pitch, pitch dark night that is not compromised by skyscrapers everywhere, pitch dark night, lying down on the cool Middle Eastern sand next to a camel, looking up at the stars in the sky, thousands of stars in the sky, and Abram being like, that's my grandkid, that's my great-great-grandkid, and just as numerous as the stars in the sky. That is how big your family tree will be, God says. But he not only promises him a future family, but future land. So take a look with me at verse 18 and 21. It says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land. From the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gergashites, and Jebusites. Clearly, this is a physical piece of land with physical borders and boundaries. Now, before we take a look at this land, I want us to rewind all the way back to Genesis 1, when God makes the land and the sea. And he makes a land in particular called Eden, where he places Adam or Adam in Hebrew, which means soil or earth. He makes Adam and he makes Eve. And then when they break their covenant with God, they are exiled from the land east of Eden. Cain, after he murders his brother uh, Abel, he is exiled even further to the land of Nod. Um, Noah... The, because the society was so corrupt back then, the land is flooded. Abraham has no land, and so he wanders as a vagabond and a nomad. The Israelites, when they construct their kingdom, their land is divided into two. The Babylonians deport 
the Israelites from the land into Babylon. In the first century world, Christians lose their land in the diaspora where they are dispersed because of persecution under King Nero. Jesus Christ is the ultimate exile who left the land of paradise to come to this land called earth. And in Revelation 21, we see a new heavens and a new earth, land, a new city called Jerusalem. And so in many ways, the bookends of the Bible go from one land to another land, from one Eden to another Eden on the other side. And when you take a look in between these bookends, particularly in the Old Testament, so I'm talking about the past, not the present. When you take a look at the past, the relationship that God's people had with God often impacted the relationship they had with the land. And so they gain the land, they lose the land. They inherit the land, then there's conquest. They come back, and then they're deported. So there's a kind of a direct correlation between the relationship that God's people had with with God and the land in the past. Now, this is why in the backdrop of Genesis 15... This is why Genesis 15 is so important, because God is promising Abram land regardless of his moral performance, regardless of his behavior. How do we know this? In Genesis 15, 8 through 10 and 17, it says, but Abram said, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now, what in the world is going on here? This is like the most obscure, strange passage you may have ever read in the Bible. Well, what's happening here is that God wants to make a covenant with Abram. Again, a contract, a vow. And the way they made covenants in the ancient Near East was by taking animals and then cutting them in half. You know, today we still make covenants. Marriage is a covenant. Okay. Um, And Abram is wondering here how he can be the beneficiary of this covenant, which is why he says, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of all these things? And so a covenant is a reminder that you will get these things. I'll give you an example of this. So um, when... When I, uh, when I was dating my wife and I wanted to pop the question, I was supposed to give a ring. We were both students, so we were dirt poor. She had no money, I had no money. The only asset I had, I didn't have animals, but the only asset I had was my car. I sold my car to buy a ring. And so my wife never asked me this, but if she asked the same question that Abram said, how can I know you're going to be committed to me in sickness. I've given you my car. <laughs> you know, this is the only thing that I have left. What more can I do to prove to you that I'm serious about this? And similarly, God, uh, Abram is saying, God, how, how do I know you're really going to deliver on this promise? And so God says, bring me two animals, cut them in half, put the carcasses aside, And typically what would happen is that both parties would walk in between the carcass. And that would functionally be their signature of this contract. But what's fascinating here 
is that in verse 17, it is not Abram that walks between the pieces of this covenant, but it is a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch that walks between the pieces. Now, what exactly is that? Well, a few chapters later, God appears to Moses in a burning, fiery bush. He appears to the Israelites in a pillar of fire. In Hebrews, God says that he himself is an all-consuming fire. This smoking fire pot with a blazing torch is none other than God himself that is walking between these pieces. And so what do we know about this covenant? This covenant is not a bilateral covenant with two parties, but this covenant is very much a unilateral covenant where one party is making all of the promises, doing all of the work, the other party gets all of the benefits and the recipient of all the, is the beneficiary of all the good stuff that come out of it. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because if the person that walks between the carcass breaks the covenant, if they break the covenant, they become like that animal. They become slain. And what God is saying here is that I will end my life if I don't fulfill this promise. That's how you can know you're going to get lineage and you're going to get land. In Hebrews 6, 13 to 20, the writer of Hebrews also said the same thing when he says, when God made his promise to Abraham, not Abraham making his promise to God, God is the one making his promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. You know, we say things today like, if someone doesn't believe us, we say things like, I swear on my life. I swear on my grandma's life. I swear on so-and-so's life, right? And here God is saying, I swear on my life because there's no one higher to swear by. And he says, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath or covenant. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. In other words, he always delivers. We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. God is the one that is swearing on his own name and his own life that he will deliver the goods to Abram. But you know what? This promise, although it is made to Abram, we are included in this promise as beneficiaries. Whether you are Israeli, Palestinian, Australian, French, North Korean, we are all beneficiaries that are included in this promise that God is making to Abram. In Ephesians 2, 11 to 13, it says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I grew up in the church, 
And one of the songs that we used to sing when I was a kid was Father Abraham. And I don't know if you remember this song, but it goes something like, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's go praise the Lord. Dun, dun. How is it that I, as an Asian American, how is it that I can call Abram my father? The reason why I can call Abram my father is because the blood of Christ is thicker than the blood of my ancestors. And it is by faith in my elder brother, Jesus Christ, that I am adopted into this new family. That is why I can say, that Abram is my father as well. In Galatians 3.16, Paul says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So on the one hand, the covenant that God makes with Abraham, it, it does include many offspring, as numerous as the stars in the sky, but the basis of this covenant is to one particular seed in particular. And that is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And it is because of that seed, Jesus Christ, that every tribe, every tongue are included in this new family of Jesus, whether you're Thai, Chinese, Palestinian, or Israeli, this hope is offered to every single one of us. This does not mean we believe in replacement theology or we use theological nerd supersessionism, where we believe that the church has replaced Israel. We don't believe that. We rather believe that we are now experiencing a fulfillment of that promise. So not replacement theology, but fulfillment theology, where we are included and grafted onto Israel. So there's an expansion that is taking place here. Uh, in the New Testament, Paul says that the gospel goes to Jews first and then to Gentiles. So there does seem to be a redemptive historical priority for the Jewish people. And yet at the same time, Abraham's descendants are not limited to Jewish people, but includes every tribe and every tongue. And this lineage doesn't just, it's not just the lineage of Abraham that is far more expansive, but it is also that physical plot of land that is also far more expansive as well. In Hebrews 11, it says this. The writer of Hebrews says, By faith he, that is Abraham, made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. Now, why would he do that? Right? He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward, here's why, he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, why would Abraham make his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country? Isn't this the land that God promised him? So why is he living like a stranger in a foreign land rather than like planting roots deep, 
deep down in the land. It's because Abram was looking forward to the city, a heavenly country whose architect and builder is God. Jesus says in Matthew 8, 11, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Revelation 21, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, as we think about all of this future stuff, in no way, shape, or form do I want to diminish the pain that Israelis and Palestinians are experiencing at this time. In no way, shape, or form do I want to diminish the pain at all. Again, land represents our quality of life, resources, wealth, our our hope, our home, our culture, identity. It represents so much, and so in no way do I want to diminish that hope. And yet at the same time, do you know what the literal word for Hebrew is? When Abraham is referred to as a Hebrew, what does the word Hebrew mean? It literally means passing through, crossing over. This is why the name of our church is exilic, because we are in exile. We are in a spiritual pilgrimage to the new Jerusalem, to our new home. This is why the prolific English writer, G.K. Chesterton, he once said that after he became a Christian, he finally understood why he felt homesick at home. You ever, you ever experienced that, feeling homesick at home? I experienced that. Every time someone asks me, where are you from? Well, I thought I was from here, but what they meant is, no, where are you really, really from? And every time someone asks me that, I feel like I don't belong here. It makes me feel homesick at home, or anytime someone compliments me on my English. It's another tangible reminder that I don't, I don't really feel like I belong here. And it makes me feel homesick at home because home is a place where you're supposed to belong. Home is a place where you feel seen. And G.K. Chesterton was like, I got it. Like now, after he became a Christian, he's like, now I understand why I, why I feel homesick at home because my true home, where I really belong, where I really feel seen, is in the new Jerusalem. And all of us as humans, we have a desire for home. And this is why the tensions are so high that we're seeing. But the Bible promises a home for all of us. Stephen Hawking, in a lecture that he gave at Cambridge, the late Stephen Hawking said this, yet, yes, we have been designed, but since we do not know what the design is, we may as well not be. My only fear for mankind is this, that we have arrived on the scene because of evolution, because of naturalistic selection, and naturalistic selection assumes natural rejection, which means we have arrived here because of our aggression. And my hope is that somehow we can prevent from eating each other up for another hundred years, because by that point, science would have devised a scheme to take all of us to the different planets of the universe, and no one atrocity would have destroyed us at the same time. But in Jesus, every one of us here has a hope 
that is far greater than colonizing Mars. And what is that hope? John 8. Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He actually saw it and was glad. This, the religious leaders say, you're, you're not even 50 years old, dude. What are you talking about? And they said to him, you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. 2,000 years after Abraham, the seed of Abraham would finally arrive on the scene. He left the land of heaven to this land called earth, where he self-exiled himself. And during his life, for the most part, he was largely homeless. But the way that Jesus inaugurated his kingdom was not with stones, knives, guns, or bombs. The way that he inaugurated his kingdom was not through military conquest, because his ministry was a non-violent kind of ministry. The way that he inaugurated his kingdom was not by fighting, but by actually dying. It's interesting to me that on the night that Jesus was arrested, there's a battalion of soldiers that come to arrest him. You know that Greek word that is used there? It gives, it gives us an idea of how many soldiers came. In our heads, we're, we're thinking maybe it was like a dozen, right? With like flaming torches and pitchforks and all that. That Greek word that is used there for the battalion of soldiers that arrived, that some scholars believe that it is anywhere from 300 to 600 soldiers that came to arrest one single man. And we all have friends like Peter, right? That, that are always like, they always put their foot in their mouths and they you know, like they're super bold and courageous and they'll do things that maybe your other friends won't do. He pulls out a knife. It's like 600 people. He pulls out a knife and he's like, he's like, should we fight? You know, and you know what he does? The high priest's servant is there, a guy named Malchus. He, he slices off his ear. And Jesus looks at him and he's like, what are you, what are you doing, Peter? He rebukes him, and then he puts his hand on Malchus's ear, and he heals someone that is about to arrest him. John 18, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. The way that he inaugurates his kingdom is not by fighting, but it's by dying and giving his life. Because just like that dark night when Abraham had this vision, 2,000 years later, there would also be a very dark night when darkness descends upon the land. It is the day that Jesus died. And the reason why he died is because we've broken our relationship or covenant with God. And much like the animals are cut into, Jesus Christ was the ultimate lamb that was slain for our sins. But instead of us dying for breaking the covenant, Jesus dies on our behalf. He bears those covenant curses so that we might experience covenant blessings. This is why when Jesus is dying on the cross, he says to the thief on his right, today you will be with me where? in paradise, this land 
you're going to be with me. We'll be there together. Now, does this mean that the land of Israel, including Gaza and the West Bank, are unimportant because we have this future Jerusalem that awaits before us? Of course not. Um, 70% of the New Testament actually takes place in modern-day Turkey. I don't know this for sure, but with with the naked eye, about 70% of the Old Testament seems to be in the land of Israel. I mean, there are rich histories and treasures that are in Israel. Archaeologists would say they've barely scratched the surface of digging for all of these treasures in Israel. The Western Wall that King Herod built the temple on top of, the second temple, it's still there. The Sea of Galilee that Jesus walked on, that I've eaten tilapia from, it's still there. This is a highly, highly significant piece of land with rich history, rich culture, just an embarrassment of riches in particular that really does in some way help us understand our faith better. And yet at the same time, at the same time, our ultimate hope for all of humanity is not in a plot of land that is half the size of New Jersey. Our ultimate hope is in the kingdom of heaven, a new heavens and a new earth that is available for all peoples. So let me close with one, two verses from Isaiah 51. We don't have it on the, uh, on the screen, but let me just read it for us and I'll pray. The prophet Isaiah says this, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only one man, and I blessed him and made him many, the Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. And that is my prayer, that in the midst of all the wars that are taking place, that gladness would be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. Let's pray together. Lord, we're reminded of another verse from Isaiah who said, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And clearly, God, uh, as the nations rage, as governments go at each other, we are reminded again uh, that we need a Savior, someone that can ultimately bring peace a land and a hope for all of humanity. And we long for that day and we want to point people to that land. We pray for peace uh, where there is no peace throughout our world. We pray that we would mourn with those who mourn and grieve with those who grieve. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring your shalom all over the world. In your name I pray, amen.